Welcome to Hope Through Hard Stuff, a podcast from Winning at Home. Please welcome your host, speaker, and award-winning author, Steve Norman. Welcome to Hope Through Hard Stuff, a podcast of Winning at Home. My name is Steve Norman, and I'm honored to have as our guest today, Dr. David T. Lamb, the professor of Old Testament and dean of the faculty at Missio Seminary in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. David, thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure, Steve. I'm really glad to be with you. David, the book is called God Behaving Badly. Subtitle is The God of the Old Testament, Angry, Racist, and Sexist. Uh, t- talk to me about the, the genesis of the book. Where, how did you know that you had to write this one? Yeah, thanks. That's a great question. I love the Bible. I've been teaching the Bible in some capacity for 40 years. I've always been attracted to the Old Testament just because it's, it's kind of quirky and weird. Um, you know, I love Jesus. I mean, I could spend all day in the Gospels. As I was teaching the Old Testament, and then I went on and got this doctorate in Old Testament, and then became an Old Testament professor, people would just start asking me all sorts of hard questions about weird, difficult texts. And then somewhere in this process, a couple of these, the so-called new atheists, Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, were writing and basically saying things that were very provocative about God's behavior, um, particularly in the Old Testament, it was getting a lot of people's attention. He's selling a lot of books and that kind of exacerbated the issue and the problem. And so I just thought this is something we need to talk about and try to make sense of. And so that's kind of what I've been doing for the last 10 or 15 years or so. David, for people who aren't maybe familiar with the arguments of the new atheists, what's, what's the thumbnail summary? Like what, what's their argument about the God as, as he is revealed in the old Testament? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a little bit like my subtitle, except, you know, my subtitle is God of the Old Testament, Angry, Sexist, and Racist. Well, they would just, they would change that from a question into a statement. The God sure. of the Old Testament is angry, sexist, and racist. And then they talk about, you know, a lot of the, the troubling texts that for people that, you know, any of your, your listeners who have been reading the Bible or studying the Bible or maybe been Christians for a long time, they're going to be familiar with some of these passages. But um yeah, so that that in a nutshell is what they're saying. They've had a, a big readership, particularly amongst college students and college professors. And so a lot of times people would go, um, you know, people that grew up going to church would go off to, uh, well, secular colleges or even possibly Christian colleges and be exposed to some of these thinkings about what the God of the Old Testament is like. And it was just be really troubling for people. And um, they came back home to their their youth ministers or whatever and say, hey, why did you guys talk about this? And so what I'm trying to do is let's say, hey, let's talk about this in the confines, well, in churches, small groups, wherever people are talking about the Bible, we need to be thinking about what God is like and why God does what he does. And let's see if we can make a little sense of it to help people um, deal with these problems. David, why is it that you think that that pastors, Sunday school teachers, youth group leaders tend tend to skirt some of these problematic passages? Like, why why do some of those students come back to you and say, "Hey, nobody ever covered these"? What's your theory on why that's the case? They're difficult and okay. um, and troubling. And you know, we read about um, the the rape of the Levite's concubine uh, in Judges nineteen, and like we just go, well, "What? Are we, why is this even in there?" And, you know, and I get it. There's part of me that just wants to kind of like take the big black Sharpie and just right through there. Um, but, you know, what, what, Paul, what Paul says something about this. What is it? Oh, that's right. All scripture, all scripture. When Paul wrote that, all scripture is inspired and profitable for teaching. And when Paul wrote that, 
he wasn't actually talking about explicitly that letter that he's writing to Timothy or even the New Testament. He was envisioning, and I think it applies for the, all of the Bible today, but when he wrote that, he was envisioning the Old Testament. And so if we are going to profit from all of the Bible, um, like Paul is motivating us to do in that letter to Timothy, then we need to teach it all and we need to not be afraid of it. But again, I understand because it's, I'm troubled. I'm troubled by a lot of these places in the Bible and, you know, it's my job to teach the Old Testament. So um, I get it. Um, but I mean, the reality is there's, there's just a lot of the Bible and maybe too much. And so we kind of pick and choose. Um, but the, the problem is if, if, if you've been, you know, raised in a church or been teaching in a church or preaching or in Sunday school or wherever, and over the course of five years, 10 years, 20 years, and it never, these path, these difficult passages, the, the conquest of the Canaanites in, in the book of Joshua, these passages are never, ever talked about, then um, it's almost like we're communicating that we're afraid. Or maybe, maybe we're communicating that we secretly believe that the new atheists are right, which, um, you know, that's, I find that quite troubling. David, it seems like there's some schools of thought that, albeit very well-intentioned, that say, hey, if you're, if you're new to faith or you're new to a faith community, the, the Old Testament's just kind of kind of backstory. So just just jump to the fun parts, like just start in the Gospels. I, I You know, with all due respect to red-letter Christians, there are people who say like, hey, all you really need are the words of Jesus. Um, why, why, did, why are many of us stuck with a false dichotomy of the God that's portrayed in the First Testament versus the, the Jesus that we find in the second one? Yeah, that's that's hard. That's a good question. I mean, again, I would probably tell people if you know if you're a new believer, I would probably recommend start with the Gospels. I love the Gospel of Mark. Um, I'm reading through John right now and having a great time with that. John's a little a little bit more abstract, a little more uh, theological, theoretical, figurative. I love it. Um, so I get it. Start you know start with the Gospels, but <laughs> people need to be um, exposed to all of the Bible. The Bible of Jesus and Paul was the Old Testament. And so to really fully understand Jesus or Paul or James or Hebrews or Revelation or any part of the, the New Testament, you need to have some background about the Old. And I realize the Old Testament is a little bit harder to understand than the Gospels or, you know, the letter to Philippians or something, whatever your favorite New Testament book is. It is a little harder to understand. But the thing I tell my students all the time or when I speak in churches is it's worth it, mm. you know, and if you really want to get to know God, you got to read the whole book. The thing you can tell people is, you know, you don't start start reading a novel, um, oh, about, you know, two thirds of the way through. Or if, if you want to really push the analogy with the Bible, you don't start reading a novel three quarters of the way through because the Bible, the Old Testament is like three quarters three quarters of the Bible. Um, it, it just, it won't make sense. And, um, and so we, we read the whole thing because the whole, all of it's profitable and it's all part of God's story. And there's just some stuff that we get in the Old Testament that we just don't see much of. A lot of the worship, it's a lot more poetry in the Old Testament, the kind of figurative just depictions of God in the book of Psalms or, or prophetic literature that we just don't see in the New Testament. But it's crucial to understand what it means to be followers of Jesus and um, and for what Jesus and Paul were talking about in the, the New Testament. That's a great insight. I, I 
a lot of people are drawn to the Sermon on the Mount. And in that passage, Jesus says, don't, don't come to think that I've a, I'm here to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill the law and the prophets. Well, the law and the prophets are covered in the, in the Old Testament, in the First Testament. And without that, that backstrap, backdrop or backstory, we can't fully appreciate the, the beauty and the majesty and the wonder of all that Jesus is, is trying to say in, in, that, in that moment. Amen. Preach it, brother. You got it. You know, I, I, I love I love what you're saying. Um, yeah. I mean, it just yeah. And, you know, there are some books in the Old Testament that get quoted quite a bit. Um, Isaiah and um, Isaiah and Saul and the Psalms, um, you know, and then Deuteronomy and other books as well. But even the books that don't get quoted as much in the New Testament, there's just so much beauty and truth and so much about the character of God. Um, and and there is the troubling bits as well. But, you know, personally, I believe that God inspired all of it. And if God inspired all of it, then he must want the, sto- the troubling story of Uzzah who gets struck down because he touches the ark in, in 2 Samuel 6. God wants that in there. And there are some things that I see about God and God's character when I look at the story of Uzzah or, um, you know, <laughs> The, the story of Elisha, the boys and the bears in, in 2 Kings uh, chapter 2, or some of these other stories that I talk about in the book. So, David, let's just jump in. So what, what do you say to, to skeptics or cynics, to people who would just come right out and say, hey, David, um, I agree with the new atheist. The, the God is unequivocally angry that we find in the Old Testament. What's, what's your response? Yeah, and that's a hard one. I'm, I'm, I'm actually working on another book right now on the emotions of God, which will come out in about a year. But God is angry a lot. In fact, if there are two sort of emotional descriptors that we could use for God, um, love and anger show up a lot. Um, Love a little bit more, but anger is, you know, depending on how you count it, anger is pretty close. God is angry a lot. Um, And so we just need to acknowledge that. God gets angry. But as we stop and think, and you know, the story of Uzzah, God gets angry. Um, but the thing we notice is God is slow to anger. Um, and there is a refrain that gets repeated like 10 times. God tells this to Moses in Exodus 34 in the first couple of verses, like verses six and seven um, of Exodus. God says he is slow to anger. And then on top of that, he says, He abounds in steadfast love. So God's anger is limited. It doesn't happen right away. I tend to be, well, and maybe I'm not unique in this regard, but I tend to be quick to anger. I think many of us are. You know, you're driving down the freeway, someone cuts you off. You you know, um, somebody does something to insult me or you, or I don't know. We we have a tendency to be quick to anger. And I get it. God is slow to anger. And he calls his people to be slow to anger as well. Um, And I think that is praiseworthy. But then he balances that slowness to anger with being, with abounding in love and steadfast love. And I think that that tells us a little about God's character. His his anger is limited and constrained and his love abounds. But then if you look at what causes God to be angry, he is angry about um, injustice. He's angry about sin. He's angry about oppression. He's angry about um, people being sexist and racist, interestingly enough. And so um, 
we, we, if we stop and look at the, all the places that God gets angry, we kind of go, wait a minute, that's, that's a really good thing to get angry about. And so that helps me understand um, something about his anger, for example. David, I think that's so helpful to me because in some of, some of the critics that you named prior, they would say, well, God's anger is based in God's fragility or God's pettiness or God's in, you know, juvenile jealousy. And I hear you saying that that's not really the case that's being revealed to us in the scriptures at all. No, no. A passage that doesn't get talked about a lot, but we see it. This is shortly after the Ten Commandments in the book of Exodus show up in chapter 20. Just a couple, couple chapters later, God is still giving. He and Moses are having a long powwow on the top of Mount Sinai and um, going over um, what he, God wants his people to do. And he says, he's talking to Moses, who's going to tell the people. Um, and this is Exodus 22, verse 21. You should not wrong or oppress a resident alien. You Because you were aliens in the land of Egypt. Um, you will not abuse any widow or orphan. If you do, and they cry out to me, I will hear their cry, and my wrath will burn. And I, this, this gets kind of, it's a little scary to me. I will kill you with the sword, and your wives will become widows and your children orphans. God, I mean, at that point in time, God wants his people to be concerned about um, foreigners, widows, and orphans. And if they don't, God is going to get really mad. Well, that gets my attention. <laughs> and you know, it's the sort of thing that gets Jesus mad in the Gospels, though. I mean, God in the Old Testament, God in the New Testament, they are one and the same. And so it shouldn't shock us when, you know, when Jesus gets upset that, you know, the foreigners are having a hard time making it into the temple because they, you know, the money changers have set up their tables and they've got sheep and goats and all that. So, um, yeah, it gets my attention, but I feel like that makes sense to me. Um, and I think, Actually, this is not troubling to me. This is something that's praiseworthy. I mean, I'm proud that my God gets mad about these sorts of things. In fact, I probably should get more mad about them than I do. I'm just, you know, I can live in my own bubble and be kind of content. But this stuff affects God emotionally. David, I love that you're saying that. In my mind, I have this picture of somebody who, you know, maybe trespasses and then they, their neighbor complains that they're trespassing. Well, if, if people don't know where the no trespassing signs are posted, they don't know yeah. that they're violating a barrier. And, and what yeah. I hear you saying is that God, God in his grace and kindness and mercy lays out in great detail where all of the boundaries are. So if at the end of the day, somebody crosses those and God shows discipline or God shows righteous anger, no, nobody should be surprised because, because right. the playbook was available from the get-go. Yeah, no. And that's a great point. This is, this is one of the points I make when I look at the story of um, Uzzah, um, who gets smitten by God, struck down by God in 2 Samuel 6 for reaching out and touching the ark. Um, God made it clear that people weren't supposed to touch the ark and, you know, you there's a lot of reasons why he does this. It may seem kind of arbitrary to us, but it is related to God's holiness and his righteousness. And he did tell them in advance the fact that God says this in Exodus 22. I mean, the thing for me that I, I kind of keep coming back to is God does judge. He judges sin. He judges sin in the Old Testament he also judges sin in the New Testament. Oh, there's, there's that story of Ananias and Sapphira right there in Acts sure. 5. Um, and, 
you know, Paul lays it out. The wages of sin are death. And, you know, we're troubled by that. But at least God does make it clear that he takes sin seriously. And yet that makes his graciousness and his mercy and his compassion and his love all, more, all the more powerful and the more impressive. You know, yes, he does take sin seriously and he, he does judge it, but he is slow to anger and quick to compassion and love, which is, again, praiseworthy. Well, thanks for addressing the, the kind of the first part of the, of, of the question. Is, is God angry? What about sexist? How, like what, what evidence is there in the text that tells us that God is anything other than sexist in the first two thirds of the Bible? Yeah, and maybe one of the first things I should say um, really quickly is that when people ask me if God is sexist, I'm gonna the first thing I'm gonna say to them is that's a hard question, and it's a really good question to ask. And if you're if someone is telling me this, a man or a woman is telling me this, um, the first thing I want to do is I want to validate them and just say thank you so much for asking me that hard question. I think sometimes when, um, you know, Christians are talking with people who would not consider themselves to be a Christian, we can be a little bit too quick to jump to the defensive of God. And I understand that motivation. Let's just acknowledge that God can stand up for himself. <laughs> He's been around for a lot longer than any of us. He's going to be around forever, right? So what I think what's important, if someone is asking me that question, I want to validate that question and just say, I don't want to insult them or denigrate them or do, do anything that might them might cause them to think I'm belittling them because I want a relationship with that person. I don't want to just have one conversation with them, but I want to have more. And they are valid. Um, uh, the, the question is valid. And I want to say that this is an important relationship to me. So someone asked me if, if God is sexist, you know, and I'd say, well, what, what passages are you talking about? Um, sometimes people ask me about the, the, the law of Deuteronomy 22. These are for people that have read their Bible a little bit more. The, the rape law in Deuteronomy 22 that says a woman who has been raped needs to marry her rapist, which, again, doesn't make any sense to me at all, and I find very, very troubling. If, if Depending on how much time I have with my friend who's asking me about this, I, what I might do is I might go all the way back to Genesis 1. The very first thing that we find out in the Bible is Men and women are made in the image of God. Uh, the, the thing I like to say when I teach this is, I like to say, I am godlike, <laughs> And I say, and you are too. In fact, turn and say that to your neighbor. You are godlike. I mean, now again, that may feel wrong, but that's what Genesis 1 is saying. We are made in the image of God in his likeness. We are godlike, And to think that that's how the Bible begins. And it's, it's almost inconceivable that someone would get to the point of saying, how could this guy be sexist? This right. is one of the most compelling, if you want to say progressive, I don't know if that's a good word or a bad word for you, but this is one of the most anti-sexist things we could find in any of ancient, any ancient writings. The Bible teaches humans are created in the image of God. We, we've got to start there. But the Deuteronomy rape law does not make sense to us. But it made sense in their context because a woman who has been raped, she would probably become either destitute or a prostitute. She just did not have a lot of options. If you read the story of Amnon and Tamar, 
these are both the, the children of David, King David, the guy right. I was named after. Amnon raped his half-sister Tamar. She, it was, she did not want to sleep with him, but she, he forced himself on her. And then afterwards, he wanted to get rid of her. But Tamar, this woman who's just been victimized, knew that she would have no options. And she said, we need to stay. Let's get married. She said, it would be worse for you to get rid of me than the, the evil that you've already done. So according to Tamar, this woman in that context, kicking her out would be worse than raping her. That does not make sense to me at all. But it made sense to her in her context. So we, we see the validity of the Deuteronomy rape law. The problem is we don't understand the context. And so as we understand the context, a lot of these laws that seem sexist or racist will make a lot more sense. David, you mentioned racism. Talk a little bit about where, where people tend to see problematic passages regarding race and ethnicity in the Old Testament. Yeah, I mean, you see it in a lot of places. I mean, there's a lot of laws that seem to be anti-foreigner. Certain foreigners aren't supposed to be a, fully a part of the people of God. You see places in you know, Ezra and Nehemiah where foreigners, um, people are being dragged apart from their spouses, you know, being dragged by their hair. It's just kind of crazy stuff. It's like, wait a minute, what is this doing in the Bible? It may not make sense to us. And I, and I get that. And I, I'm troubled by some of these texts. Again, the trajectory of scripture is all races, all humans um, are, are creating the image of God. And according to the Bible, we're all related. We're all descendants of Adam and Eve. And all this, again, according to the Bible and descendants of Noah. So we're all cousins, <laughs> every single one of us on this planet, according to the Bible. Um, and and you, you, you see in Genesis 12, the call to Abraham. And Abraham is the forefather of, of the faith. Um, this patriarch, one of the you know the most famous people of faith, Paul is praising um, Abraham's faith in, in in his writings. And the call to Abraham is that God is going to bless him, and through him all the families of the earth will be blessed. God wants to bless everybody. We see that He has got special things that He's doing amongst the nation of Israel. But the trajectory of scripture, and we see this at the very beginning, Genesis 1, Genesis 12, you know, we see it with the story of Jonah, we see it with the story of Ruth. God is all about welcoming foreigners into his people, because he is the God, not just of the Israelites, but of God, the God of the whole world. He wants, he, he wants every tongue and tribe and people and nation to be worshiping him, because he is the God of the whole planet, and I think we can't talk about that enough. And, and Jesus names that in his inaugural yeah. sermon in his yeah. hometown of Nazareth, right? And, and it, right. So, some people wanted to throw him on a town, even, even throw him off a cliff on his very first day of the job, because he's citing <laughs> passages in the Old Testament that let, yeah. that let them, a Jewish audience, yeah. know that God's, God's scope of love and mercy and kindness was broader than just, just their tribe. Yeah, I think that's a great point, that it, it is, it's one of the things that got Jesus into the most um, hot water, as you say, from Luke 4, his, his inaugural address, when he, he references, um, uh, you know, the, uh, the widow of Nain um, uh, with Elijah and then uh, Elisha, the, the um, Naaman, the 
um, not sorry, not the widow, the widow of um, Zarephath is the yeah. widow that gets um, that Jesus references there in Luke four. And then the, uh, Naaman, the, the Aramean uh, general who ends up getting healed of leprosy from Elisha and people get irate. And I think I understand, you know, I, I love my country and the Israelites love their country and there's nothing wrong with loving. We got to love our country, but we also got to realize that I am not primarily an American. I'm a follower of Jesus and that's got to be first. And, and so that's what it, and, and we see that in the Bible, the, 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 in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the God of the Bible is a God of the whole planet. Um, and I think you know, we see this in the Psalms all over the place. God wants the whole earth to worship him, yeah. <laughs> not just Israelites or Egyptians uh, or, you know, whatever, Americans or people, Pennsylvanians. I live in Pennsylvania or, you know, I, you know, I love Pennsylvania. I've lived, I've lived a third of my life here and it's, it's a great state, but you know, I, 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 lo I love people from other, other states and other countries. And, and, and I see, I see, I see God in all of those places. And that's important for me. That's a powerful reminder. Thank you, David. So the book is a little over 10 years old. What, what prompted you, like what circumstances were happening in your life and in the kind of cultural landscape that made you want to release an expanded edition? I start out with a story. Um, we were watching Ghostbusters. Now this was the original Ghostbusters, um, not, not, you know, none of the sequels. And, uh, and at the, the end, the, the, um, uh, um, Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd, their characters, again, I apologize to people who haven't seen the original. They're talking about the catastrophe about to befall the city. And he says, uh, Murray, actually, the city's headed for a disaster of biblical proportions. And the mayor goes, what do you mean biblical? Um, Aykroyd comes in. He's, he means Old Testament, real wrath of God type stuff. And then Murray chimes in human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. Um, again, it's just, it's just a hilarious line. But my, my point here, oh, when I saw this, because it's, he says it's Old Testament wrath of God, I was so bummed that I didn't include that in the original. And I just, <laughs> I kind of, I had sort of a panic attack was be, would be too strong of a word, but I, I kind of yelled out in anguish. And then my son says, well, dad, you could just put it in the next edition genius. So um, that's not the only reason for the, 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 the next edition, but um, I just think I've learned a lot about teaching difficult texts over the last decade. And I realized that some of my methodology for how do I approach a problem, approach a text, kind of work through it, try to make sense of it, understand the context. Um, I didn't, I did that in the first book, but I, I wanted to kind of lay out my, my methodology in a way that people could hopefully read it and duplicate it. Um, I tell some stories. I may have a new forward, a new afterward. People ask me a lot of questions about Noah and the flood. Like, why didn't you talk about Noah? I'm like, oh, yeah. And the first time someone asked me about Noah and the flood, I go, yeah, that's a good point. I should have talked about Noah. But after like, you know, a couple dozen people asked me about Noah and the flood, I'm thinking, yeah, if I do an expanded edition, we definitely need to talk about Noah. And, you know, anytime you talk about Noah, it is, it's just, it's pretty easy to think a little bit about the earth and our planet. And I don't want to go too far in that regard. If you want, you can read about, but I do talk about what it means for Christians to be concerned about creation care. On a more serious level, I have found that teaching 
and writing about some of the most disturbing, difficult, troubling parts of the Bible, and I've been doing it now for, well, over 10 years, has been hard on my soul. Hmm. There have been points in times where I've had serious health issues. Uh, there was a point in time shortly after God Behaving Badly came out where I had issues with reflux, which was related to stress. Um, I had damaged vocal cords because I was doing a lot of speaking and teaching about it. I ended up getting a concoction of medicines that um, didn't help, made things worse. I started losing sleep. And then I um, started having anxiety issues and panic attacks. And, you know, God, through the, the help of friends and family, my wife was amazing in this time, uh, and prayer, God healed me. But as I look back on it, I thought, you know, I think one of the factors that is, has made my life so difficult is I just spent so much time focusing on the most disturbing parts of the Bible. It's just mm. been hard on my soul. So when I teach about it, I tell people, anytime you encounter a troubling part of the Bible, do me a favor and just say a prayer for me. Mm. And that's made a huge difference. So I've got a section on the how to care for your soul when you're struggling with when you're you're working through difficult texts or difficult parts of the Bible, and um, and and that that has been hard, but that has kind of been a lifesaver for me. So I kind of wanted to share a little bit of my my story about that because there's a lot of people that just struggle with these texts and aren't sure what to do with them. David, I appreciate your candor there, and it, it's a it's a really helpful disclaimer and a qualifier for because I think many of us, especially people who either believe the text is true or want to believe the text is true, and and we hear about how God's word is a light to my path and it's honey on my lips, and like everything goes up into the right when we start reading the Bible, and you say no, there there are some parts that call for reckoning that force us to wrestle with God and force us to wrestle with ourselves, and yeah. those can lead us into some places that we wouldn't choose on our own. It, but it doesn't mean that it's uh, not a worthwhile journey. Yeah, yeah. I feel like God has put this call on my heart to help people make sense of some of the hard parts of the Bible. It has been costly, personally. And so I want to try to help other people that may feel like God, for one reason or another, have a similar call. For any of us who are just troubled by things in the Bible that don't make sense to us, or, or we just find really disturbing, I think we do need to be thinking about, and particularly, you know, as we're recording this, and, you know, COVID is, um, the COVID pandemic is kind of, we're coming up on two years here. We just need to be asking ourselves, how do we care for our souls in the midst of difficult times? There's times I just want to like, I just want to read Psalm 23. <laughs> You know, sure. I need to just soak in Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. That's part of soul care. And I think yeah. um, it's good to talk about that. It's good. It's been good for me. Tim, you and I had a shared professor back in the day, John Goldingay, and he tells a story about how when he was an associate rector at a church in England, he got frustrated that the lectionary always called on them to read the Psalms. And he was complaining about that to his supervisor. And, and he said, son, one day you'll need the Psalms. Yeah. And that line has always stuck with me because now is one of those seasons where nationally and personally, I, I do need the Psalms. John is a friend and a mentor, and I have been blessed by him in many ways. And emailed Scott McKnight about my next book. And he said, um, gosh, that, that sounds like another a Golden Gay-esque um, uh, project. I'm like, yeah, he, he shaped me in some big ways. But um, 
yeah, someday. We, and we, this is a season where we need the Psalms. And I think that that's, that's, a, that's a great word. Um, the, the Psalms speak for us. They speak to us. It's important for us to be able to just say, I need to pour my heart out. And um, God, where are you? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, the, yeah. um, uh, Psalm 22. Um, that's the prayer that a lot of us could probably be praying right now. David, what do you say to listeners or readers of your book who are feeling wildly disoriented when they read these problem passages and they feel like may, maybe not just their intellectual questions, but maybe their like core spiritual identity is at risk and, and it's terrifying. What, what do you say to people who are asking the hard questions or people who care for people who are asking hard questions and, and are having a hard time figuring out which way is up? Yeah, that's a hard question. <laughs> Well, the first thing I'd probably say is you're not alone. And I mean, I think one of the reasons that, you know, I've been surprised by how well the book is sold is just there's a lot of people that are, a lot of people think God behaves badly. And I get that. And so you are not alone. Actually, I had a really moving conversation. Um, my wife works with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. I was on staff with InterVarsity for a long time. And um, um Sometimes I, I have I've helped out or I've been involved in the Urbana Missions Conference. I don't know, some people that have you know been around Christianity for a while, at least the, the missions world, might be familiar with the Urbana Missions. I went the last one, I was speaking to a woman and we were we had volunteered to help out with communion. We were just chatting and kind of getting to know it a little bit. And then all of a sudden, this woman says, Wait a minute, did you write God behaving badly? And I said, uh, yeah, actually I did, you know, and, and she almost broke down in tears um, because she and a couple of close friends, they were college students, went through the book at a very difficult, dark time in their lives. And she said, that book's meant a lot to me. I, I was just really deeply moved by that. I think you're not alone is what I would tell people. And if at all possible, find some other people who are like-minded or struggle with similar questions, if your church is afraid of asking hard questions, it might be time to start check checking out other churches. Because if you are struggling with these things on a pretty fundamental level, it's going to be important for you. I mean, obviously, you pray, pray your struggles to God. And I think that's important. Be, be honest with God. God can handle it. Trust me. He can handle your, your honest questions. The Bible and particularly the Psalms is full of full of them, but find a couple of like-minded people that you could. Um, I mean, if you want to talk through the book, obviously that'd be fantastic. You know, go through the Psalms together, or um, look at some of their most troubling parts of the Bible together, and um, you know, get just a two or three friends or maybe family members. As you do this together, don't be afraid to ask hard questions, and start there. But then. Try to make sense of it. Try to understand the context. Try to understand what's the biblical context, the ancient context, and then pray for God to give you wisdom. That's a prayer God wants to answer. Thanks. That's a good word. It's one that I certainly need to hear today. David, if people want to find out more about your research, your writing, your speaking, uh, where should they go? Uh, they can email me, dlam at missio.edu. They can go to my blog, um, davidtlam.com. Again, the book is God Behaving Badly. 
is the God of the Old Testament, angry, sexist, and racist. This is the expanded edition. It has been an encouragement to me. Uh, I've been ingesting it. It's been stretching the way that I think about myself, the way that I think about the text, the way that I think about God. And it's my strong encouragement uh, for everybody who's listening uh, to check it out as well. You've been listening to Hope Through Hard Stuff. Uh, our guest today has been David T. Lamb. If you've got more questions about the ministry of Winning at Home, feel free to go online, winningathome.com. Thanks so much. And we'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening to Hope Through the Hard Stuff. If you liked what you heard, please remember to subscribe to it, rate and review it, and then share it with others. Winning at Home offers hope through counseling and coaching, motivational speaking, community events, and other media resources. If you believe in what we do and want to support us in our mission, consider making a donation at winningathome.com.